Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28 will be our text this morning. That is Hebrews 9, 23 through 28. Before we get to the text, I'll just briefly summarize what it, uh, the, the, the flow of the text that, that hopefully will help us. The context comes in which the author is comparing the new covenant to the old covenant, the better things that come in Christ versus the old covenant. And in this particular passage, what we are reminded of what Christ has done on our behalf, which is in contrast to what the old covenant would do and what the old priesthood would do. And specifically, we see this brought out in three different ways, and it's with the word appear. In fact, you find the word appear three times in the text, and each time it comes with a different emphasis. And the first emphasis is on what Christ is, is presently doing on our behalf, how he has appeared in heaven on our behalf and right now is doing that. The second appearance that we see of Christ in this text is that Christ appeared, what he has done, that is, what has already been accomplished. So you can think of the first appearing of Christ that's in the text is what he's presently doing. The next time the word appear comes, it's to what Christ has done. And then the final appearance of Christ that the text mentions is what Christ will do. So we see what Christ is doing now what Christ has done, and what Christ will do. And it's all with this word, appearance, that comes. And this is written to a church that is dealing with struggles, that is dealing with trials, that are dealing with persecution. They're looking at going back to the old system of worship and actually really denying Christ. And so the author is warning them, do not fall away. Do not drift away. Remember what Christ is doing for you. Remember what Christ has done for you. And remember what Christ will do for you. And that's the same message we need to hear this morning. As well. So let us hear the word of God, beginning in verse 23 of chapter 9. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of his word. It begins by saying, thus it was necessary. This relates to what was previously stated in the worship. We see in verse 22, where it tells us, indeed, under the law, almost 
Everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so this is the picture of that Old Testament, that Old Covenant worship, where everything had to be set apart, everything had to be sanctified, that is, everything that was defiled had to be cleansed by blood, and without the shedding of blood, we're told there's no forgiveness of sins. So that comes into verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified. That word copies is incredibly important. What we see is that it was prescribed, it was commanded, that things had to be cleansed in the Old Covenant. But those things in the Old Covenant were just simply copies of something real. They weren't the thing itself. The word copy can mean symbol. It can mean example. It can mean pattern. In chapter 8, verse 5, it says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And so this idea of a copy and heavenly things is teaching us this one simple fact. The tabernacle, the, the use of the vessels in the, this tabernacle, the utensils in the tabernacle, all the things that were related to the tabernacle or to the tent were just simply an example, a pattern, a copy, a shadow of something greater, and specifically it says, of heavenly things. And so how do we understand not only what the temple or tabernacle was, but what was going on inside of it was to put forth an example of something greater. So just simply put, when we're reading the Old Testament, what we must see is how these things were a shadow of what was to come. In other words, they were all pointing to Christ and His complete work that He would accomplish on the cross. And so they were copies of heavenly things. They weren't the thing itself. They pointed to a greater reality. And those we are told in verse 21 what those copies were. It says, in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Those were the copies of the heavenly things, the things that would be used in worship so that the high priest could approach God. And so this is why we're told that the Old Covenant was not without fault. It actually couldn't bring the people of God into the presence of God. And so thus it was not without a fault. And so in this copy, this example of it, it was an example of what would come. And so we're told here, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And you have to pause for one second. This is talking about purifying earthly things. We can understand that. We can grasp that earthly things are defiled and corrupt. Then why does it say here, heavenly things themselves? What does it mean to be purified? Well, earthly things were cleansed in an earthly manner, and specifically God required blood. Why did inanimate objects need to be defiled, and, or I mean need to be purified? They were defiled as a result of human hands. You think about this in the ark, carrying of the ark. When the ark was carried back into Jerusalem, 
the ark began to slip, and Uzzah the, stuck out his hand to keep the ark from falling to the ground, and he was struck dead. You know, R.C. Sproul, in his fantastic book, The Holiness of God, makes this observation about that. He says, Uzzah thought his hand was more pure than the dirt of the ground. And that is why God struck him dead, is because his defiled hands touched that which was supposed to be holy and set apart. So why did things need to be cleansed? Well, because we defile things. And so the corruption of the flesh led to a physical defiling of things. You think about in the Old Testament how if you touched a dead body or if this mold grew in your wall or if this took place, there was defilement and things needed to be purified. Things needed to be cleansed. Shows us the pervasive nature of sin, the ugliness of sin. And so we can grasp We can understand why things here on earth need to be defiled, but then it says, but the heavenly things themselves. And you have to say, hold on, pause. How is it the heavenly things need to be purified? He shifts from from earth to heaven and makes what seems to be an odd statement on the surface of it. The the heavenly things, it says, were purified with better sacrifices than these. So why would heaven need to be purified? Why would the things of heaven, as it says, heavenly things, need to be purified? Is not heaven set apart? Is heaven not holy? Isn't heaven undefiled? So what is meant by heavenly things? Because we would affirm that heaven itself is undefiled. Heaven itself is in need of no purification. So what are those heavenly things that needed purifying? Because heaven itself did not need to be purified. There's many different opinions. Calvin simply says it was speaking of the kingdom of God here on earth. But I don't think that that's necessarily the right interpretation. The context is about being in God's presence. And we were previously told that Christ cleanses something in the worshiper. He cleanses the conscience, something the Old Covenant could not do. And it's interesting, when you begin to think about the heavenly things... You think about the tabernacle, you think about the temple, you think about the things that were used in worship that were to usher in God's presence. What are the people of God called? As a collective whole. Well, the Scripture tells us that we are actually the temple of God. In fact, we're told in chapter 3, verse 6, where it says this, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. So what is this purification of heavenly things? It can be no less than that of the conscience of those worshipers. It can be no less than the cleansing of those people that need to be cleansed in order to be brought into the presence of God. 
And so what this is simply teaching us is that we are cleansed by the blood of Christ. And we are told that by that cleansing, we are brought into the presence of God. Now, how do we understand the cleansing blood of Christ? We're told specifically here that it actually accomplished something. It actually cleansed something. So then is that blood of Christ applied to everyone? No. Or else all would be cleansed and be before God. It is by faith that the blood of Christ is applied. It is by faith that we are cleansed. It is by faith and through faith that we are purified as those heavenly things that we may now enter into the presence of God. That's where the application of it comes. So let me just simply ask, are we of faith? Another way of asking this is, have we been cleansed? And if we have been cleansed, if we have then been, here's the word, purified of conscience, and if we have been purified of sin, here's the reality, you are pure before a holy God because of the blood of Christ. Now think about the beauty of that. My sin has been nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. The wonderful words of it as well. Is that now I've been cleansed of my sins. I'm no longer guilty. I no longer carry them. I'm no longer held accountable for that because Christ has taken that. Christ has purified what was filthy and ugly and He has made it clean and pristine and pure. That is the shed blood of Christ on behalf of those by faith that have trusted in Christ. But let me ask you this. If you've been purified, doesn't that result in a corresponding life? You think about it very simply like this, as if you take a polluted substance that's sick, take a river that's polluted, and has all sorts of things in it that is killing the life in it. There's a corresponding result of being defiled. That's death. That's sickness. That's not living. But if you took that same river and you began to purify it, what would emerge from it? The things that you would expect from purification. Life. Abundance. Fruitfulness. And so, in other words, when we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, it's not just simply a legal declaration that you are not guilty. It is that, but it is now that your life corresponds with the fact that you're not guilty and you're living for Christ because of what Christ has done for you, because He has purified you, because He has made you clean. There has to be an effect of the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer because what Christ has said to have done to them, to have cleansed them. Friends, are you cleansed? Has Christ made you pure? Let us then with Paul say we strive for that reality that Christ has made real in our lives. And it's not because, very clearly, that we made ourselves clean. 
It's not because we keep ourselves clean, but rather what Christ has done and has accomplished and continues to work in us. In other words, the accomplishment of Christ's work and the ground of our faith and the assurance of faith is Christ's work, but we have to recognize that work does change us. Now, there's a further observation here we ought to note, and that is this, is heaven is set apart and holy and prepared for us, and we are prepared for it. We are prepared by Christ's blood for heaven. And why is that? Look at verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And the whole point of verse 24 is this, is that Christ didn't enter into an earthly temple to stand on our behalf, but He enters into the presence of God in heaven on our behalf. The earthly temple was just a copy of the reality. And so we're reminded again of the earthly things. They were just copies, the rituals, the ceremonies, the utensils, the vessels. They were just copies. You might think that, what does that have to do with a Christian that's not from a Jewish context in 2023? When there's no standing temple. When we don't watch sacrifices taking place. What does that have to do with us? I'm not tempted to go back to that. And this is a a point we repeatedly come back to. Because this is speaking, this is written to Hebrews that were actually looking and standing in the shadow of the temple and thinking, I think I want to go back to that sacrificial system because this Christ stuff is leading to persecution and is leading to struggles in my life and it's not turning out how I like, so I think I'm going to go back to that old way of the temple. So how does that apply to us? Let me just simply ask you, what I think is being asked of them, what, what are we trusting in? Are we trusting in earthly things? You see, we're prone to do this. They were prone to, just like we were, are, to look at earthly things and our actions and our involvement and our earning our right to stand before God. In fact, if I go and offer this sacrifice, then I'll be right with God. God tells me that in the Old Covenant. I just have to do it over and over again. And so the Hebrews were looking at those things and saying, I'll be okay with God if I go and do those things, so maybe I should go do those things. Well, what, what is it in the Christian life that is, seems to be a, an analogous correlation between those two things? Well, let me just tell you this, and where do we find comfort? Is it in how much you pray? Is that the basis of your assurance? Of your salvation is how, how much you pray or how well you pray? Is, is it the basis of your assurance and how much you read of the Scripture and how many Puritans you have read? You should read Puritans. What if your basis of your, your faith and your assurance of faith and your standing before God was on how well you attended church? 
Now, we should obviously be doing those things because we've been cleansed, we've been purified, and now because Christ has worked something in us, we desire those things. But here's the question. Do we find comfort in those things as being the means of our assurance and the means of our salvation? Is my assurance in the fact that at one point I prayed to receive Christ? Or is my assurance in the shed blood of Christ and that my sin can never outweigh God's grace? If our comfort is anything in but the blood of Christ, we will always lack a true peace, which leads to this temptation of saying, I must do more to have right standing before God. That's the whole entire argument of the book. What Christ has accomplished on behalf of the Christian is sufficient, it is superior, it is better, it is accomplished, and He now stands in heaven on your behalf. Our comfort is the current reality that Christ is in heaven. Look what the passage says. Christ appears now in the presence of God on our behalf. And so rather than being worried about getting what we deserve, rather than being focused on our failures despite the wrath that we should be incurring, we actually are told we have one that now appears on our behalf. Our behalf. The collective nature of the church, Christ stands on our behalf right now. So on whose behalf does Christ appear? Those that have been cleansed, the heavenly things. Those that have by faith have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. He's our representation. That's what it means that He's on our behalf. So how great you are, how well you do as a Christian, how much you were able to do in Christian things, How well you pray, how well you attend church, how well you do the Christian life is not your representation before God in heaven. Christ is. If those other things become your representation before God in heaven, you're resting on something fallible and defiled. But what we have is Christ on our behalf, which means this Christ, if you are in Christ, you have trusted in Christ by faith, Christ is for you. Think of the implications. Will the Father ever reject His Son? Will the Father ever deny the requests of His Son? Will the Father ever refuse His Son? No. And Christ is on our behalf, pleading for us, interceding for us. Christ is pouring out His Spirit upon the church even now to gift the church for the growth of the kingdom. When it says He is on behalf of us, it's, it's sometimes the word translated for. Again, that means that He is for us. And you see this word so many times in Scripture, but let me just give you a little glimpse of it so we can, we can, just, we can see how wonderful 
the word behalf. It's, it's the Greek word huper. It's just one little tiny word. But it's probably one of the most important words in all of Scripture because it's what is, we're told Christ does for us. And let me read you a few passages. You don't need to turn there, but Mark 14, 24. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many on behalf. I'm pouring my blood out. I'm dying for you. Christ does that for a particular people. We see this in John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for, on behalf of the sheep. Christ voluntarily lays down his life on your behalf. If you're in Christ, he laid down his life for you. He did that on behalf of you. He did that for you. Romans chapter 5, in verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died on behalf or for the ungodly. Christ didn't die for the righteous. There are none that are righteous. Christ died for the unrighteous. He died for the weak. He died for the ungodly. He laid down his life for his enemies. And we have to see ourselves that before we received Christ by faith, we were that ungodly, weak enemy of Christ. Gnashing our teeth at Him. See what Christ has done for us? He shed His blood on our behalf. He stands now on our behalf. And that's what the text is telling us in the presence is now. You'll notice that it says, now he appears in heaven itself, in the presence of God. That's right now. It's at this moment. And so what Paul, the author of Hebrews, is is writing to these Hebrews is saying, You might be dealing with struggles right now. You might be thinking about going back to these old things. You might be dealing with persecution. But let me just give you a glimpse of heaven which you can't see. Christ is there on your behalf. Right now. This is the current reality of what Christ has done. What a glorious thought that Christ is there on my behalf. On your behalf. We're told by Paul in Romans, when we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding on our behalf. It's interesting that Paul says Christ died, and then he goes on to say, but more than that, more than that he died, more than what he accomplished in the past, is what he's doing right now for you. He's interceding. Christ is in the presence of God for you. It's amazing. This is our comfort. Because you won't find a lot of people for you. The world's not for you. The world system's not for you. Satan's not for you. And people are only for you as long as it fits within their own worldview. 
Live a Christian life in a secular world. You find out how quickly people are not for you. But the sovereign king of the universe that called all things into existence right now, at this moment, is for you. There's no greater news than that. That word for you is as the picture of Christ standing on our behalf, almost as a lawyer representing his client. But the beauty is, is this, is Christ is not only the lawyer, he's also the judge. That's the vision Stephen sees. Christ standing on his behalf, arguing his case, hearing his case. Christ has cleansed us. He continues to cleanse us. He continues to represent us in heaven that we are purified and able to approach God in worship. We gather this morning in the name of our resurrected Savior that purifies our conscience that we may worship the Father by the blood of His Son. That's what Christ is doing presently right now. And he's doing this presently right now because of something he has accomplished in the past. And that begins to be the shift in verses 25 through 26, where we see, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood, not his own. And so you see the example of a, of, of a Levitical high priest versus Christ priesthood, and they're, they're, they're contrasted with one another. And, and let me just bring out a couple of these contrasts between Christ priesthood and the Levitical priesthood, priesthood, and that is Christ, just like the high priest, entered into the Holy of Holies. They both entered into the holy place that was prescribed by God. But Christ, unlike the high priest, entered into the true holy place, not the copy. Christ didn't go into the place that's made by hands, but he went into that place that was not made by human hands. Christ offered blood, just like the high priest offered blood. The high priest would have to offer blood. Particularly what's in the mind of the author of Hebrews is the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. That once a year sacrificed But unlike the high priest, Christ offered his own blood. There's something special. There's something unique about what Christ did that no one else could do. The high priest did offer blood, but it was the blood of an animal. And oftentimes, it wasn't their animal. It was an animal brought to them. You see, the the high priest commitment and work before the people stopped short of a self-sacrifice. The priest never offered themselves. It, It was horrible to butcher an animal for sin, and we can all admit that. But what about offering oneself, one's own life, to die for sin? And what about this? Is the, the high priest was sinful himself. He should be dying for his own sin. But our high priest Christ was without sin. He was undefiled. He was pure. He was without sin. But he died not for his sin, but for a sinful people. He became sin that we might know the righteousness of God. 
what a high priest we have. And you can think about the, the priest having to do this. You, the priest having to offer an animal for someone else. Christ does it voluntarily for those that by faith would trust in him. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever taken the blame for someone else? Have you taken the blame for something you didn't do, but you wanted to, to save someone? You can think of an older brother with a little brother or older sister with little sister taking the blame for the little one oftentimes so that the, they wouldn't get in trouble and they take that blame for them. Maybe you've experienced that. You, you certainly know what I'm talking about. How did it feel to do that? To take the blame for something you didn't do. It turns out to be that you could resent that a little bit, right? Why am I bearing the punishment for someone else? I didn't do that. That's how we think in our human nature is if I was to take the blame for someone else, I, I, I would have some sort of resentment with that. I would, I would have something that bothered me about that. I, I would be thinking in the back of my mind, this isn't fair that I had to take the blame for something I didn't do. That's our human nature. That's how we would respond. No matter how pious our motives may be on the outward side of it, we inside would be thinking, why did I have to take the blame for someone else? So I want you to look at our Savior, what He did. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ went to the cross with joy on our behalf. He took what we deserve on our behalf, not only voluntarily, but with joy, because it was pleasing to the Father. That's what Christ did on our behalf. That is what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. So how much more joy does he have to represent us now? It is with joy. It's not begrudging that Christ died for you. It's not begrudging that Christ intercedes for you. Christ isn't in heaven thinking, boy, that person messed up again. i got to go back to my Father and intercede for them. Christ does it with joy. So unlike the high priest, it was Christ's own blood. Christ offered himself at the right time, just like the high priest would do it at the right time. But unlike the high priest, Christ, we're told, he didn't do it every year. And this becomes the argument in verse 26. For then he would have to, had suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. What's the point is this, if Christ's one-time sacrifice was not sufficient, he would, he would have to continually from the beginning offer himself repeatedly over and over again. But Christ doesn't come and offer his life upon the cross and die again and say, take sin again and then come back in a year and do it again. But he, he has appeared, it tells us, once for all. There's that word appeared again. This is what he's done. This is what he's accomplished. So the accomplishment of his sacrificial death has taken place not to be repeated again. Now I want you to notice in this text 
It says, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, there's, there's two points of reference we want to see in this. The one is that he has appeared, which is speaking of his coming, his incarnation that was necessary for him to die. But then there's a second point of time reference, and that is at the end of the ages. When do the last days begin? When are the last days upon us? What does the Bible say? It says now are the end days. Now are the last days. In fact, the author of Hebrews opens up with this very fact. It says in chapter 1, verse 2, But in these last days we are presently residing in the last days. The incarnation of Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, ushered in the last days. God's timetable is in the final stages. And you'll see that in the following verses. The culmination of the end times awaits us, but nonetheless, we're told repeatedly in the Scriptures, we are in the last days. Jesus said the harvest is at the end of the age. Paul tells us that that harvest is Jew and Gentiles and the tearing down of the curtain of hostility. So if we're in those last days... What are the characteristics of these last days? Let me just give you a real quick summation of this. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. What a message for the Hebrews to hear, because they were facing difficulties. They were having the threat of persecution lingering over them constantly. So we should not be surprised when these things come upon us because we were told that they would come upon us. That's the characteristic of those last days is that there would be times of difficulty. And that doesn't change until Christ returns. So how are we supposed to live in times of difficulty? Well, Paul tells the church at Thessalonica how they ought to live. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in verse 5, it says, For we are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him." So how are we supposed to live? Well, it says soberly. It says that we are to live every day with Christ. And when we die, we will live with Christ. And so what is soberly means is that you are living under the lordship of Christ. That Christ is king. And in these difficult times, we are to live with Christ. So how do we live soberly? Well, Back to Hebrews. It tells us Christ appeared to put away sin. 
This does not mean that there is no sin in the world or that sin is diminishing. It just means those that have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb are no longer guilty for their sin. And now we may live soberly. What does it mean that he put away sin? John Trapp, the Puritan commentator, says this. It means that he he blots out the black handwriting with red lines of his blood drawn over it. Told you, you should read Puritans. They just had a way of putting things that make the Scriptures make so much sense. That's what Christ has accomplished. But we see that there's a future appearance as well. And that comes in verses 27 and 28. And that He will appear again. Verse 27, it says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And so the author is making an an argument on basically what we observe in life, and that's people die once. People don't die and then get, get back up again. Human experience teaches us that, and so it teaches us that Christ died once. And the point is, is that he died once and will appear not to die again, but to actually bring us to glory. That's what we're waiting for. That's the point of the passage, but I, do, I, I, would, I would be abusing, I, I think I would be... I think I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't bring out a couple of points from this that are not the author's points, but are points from the text. This refutes reincarnation, right? You don't die and come back as a butterfly. A lot of people believe that. This refutes, it explicitly refutes reincarnation. But in, to our evangelical world, it refutes those who have claimed to have died and come back to life. Now, I'm not talking about the person whose heart stops and they're revived. I'm talking about a person who is dead, their soul leaves the body. It, just, just Google, don't, don't Google, well, just take my word. But if you look at how many books are written, heaven is for real. How someone died and then was in heaven and then came back to life. Let me just tell you what that is. That is a way for a publisher to make money. Period. The scripture refutes that idea. So I don't care how many people have that experience and talk about it and write a book and then happen to get very wealthy off the sales of that book that gets promoted on TBN. This is dangerous stuff to peddle false theology. The scriptures tell us a man is appointed to die how many times? Once. The scripture is pretty clear. The word appointed, it can also be translated. In other words, and it can be translated also as laid. We see it translated this way, that a word appointed, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. So it speaks of taking an object and setting it in something. That's what that appointed means. Except for here, when Paul says this, it's the human person is the object that has been laid. That God appoints the time that a person will die. In fact, Job makes note of this. In Job chapter 14, verse 5, he says, Since his days are determined. That seems pretty clear. 
He goes on to say, just in case we don't get it, and the number of his months is with you, you have appointed his limits, meaning that you're not going to get past that time that we're told at the beginning of the verse, since his days are determined. God has set a boundary around that, and he will accomplish it. Ecclesiastes 8.8 says the same thing. Christ says only one ascends and only one descends. Death is a certain reality, and it happens once. And what we have to know about death is it's always before us. And this also refutes another false doctrine, which is annihilationism, meaning this, we don't just die and go out of existence. You're more than just worm food. Because we're told, and after that comes the judgment. This is speaking of the day of judgment when Christ shall separate the sheep from the goats. And so like what we experience in death, it says, so Christ having been offered once. The language of offer is of offering. Notice what it says. Christ offered himself. Christ was offered. It speaks of his sacrificial death and the reason to bear the sins of many. Christ bore the sins of many. He bore the sins of those that would trust in him. And that is complete. It's not to be repeated again. He's accomplished it. And then he will appear a second time. Christ is going to return, but not to deal with sin in terms of dying again, but to save those that are eagerly awaiting him. Let me just give you a glimpse of this eagerly awaiting. Paul writes of it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await. That is, we are eagerly awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. That is, that Christ, we are waiting for Christ to return and bring us to glorification. So who is eagerly waiting for Him? Let me just make... A point here. This is a description of the Christian life. It's literal, a literal, very wooden translation is to say the waiting ones. Are you a waiting one? Is there an expectation, an excitement as we await that day? You think of waiting for something you, you are anticipating and the joy of it, thinking about when it comes, how it consumes you. That's part of the Christian life, eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. Friends, do you long for the return of Christ? Do you pray for the return of Christ? Is it your hope that Christ will return? Or do we put other things before that concern of Christ? Glorious moment where all knees will bow and all tongues confess that He is Lord. Is that the most glorious thought we can have is the return of Christ? Are we eagerly awaiting that because He has cleansed us? You see, the day of Christ's return is either a day of great joy or it's a great day of fear. It's a great day of fear because when He returns, He will separate the sheep from the goats. 
there will be a final judgment. And we either stand representing ourselves with earthly things before a holy God that are defiled, or we stand as purified as the heavenly things and are said, told by Christ himself, well done, my good and faithful servant. Where are you with Christ right now? Is Christ standing on your behalf, or are you still clinging to the the dirt of the earth and offering that up as your righteousness? Who is it that stands before a holy God in heaven before you? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you rested in Christ? Have you received Christ? And if you have, he is for you. He's on your behalf. He died on your behalf, and he will come to glorify you. But if not, you will only experience his eternal wrath, the wrath of the Lamb upon those that rejected him. Where are you at this morning with Christ? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious truths of the gospel, incomprehensible truths such as that we have been made pure, that we are called righteous. We know it's not of our own, but of Christ and what he has done for us. Father, we pray that your grace would be upon those that may not know Jesus and that that you would call them by name and that they would call out in faith upon the Lord. Father, we pray you would do a, a work amongst us. And Father, those of us that that have called upon the name of Christ in faith, we we pray that we would be comforted, that our assurance would increase and our expectation and hope of the return of Christ would increase as well. We pray these things all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.